Hello and welcome to another episode of I Love This Band. My name is Jennifer Quigley. My last episode was about PJ Harvey and I was talking to Dwayne Woods. So if you haven't heard that episode, please go back and listen after this if you wish. There are also a few other episodes about various different artists you might enjoy. So today I'm going to be talking to Derek O'Shea and we're going to be talking about the Pixies. I'm really excited to have Derek on because I've been meaning to have him as a guest for quite a while now. So it's really good to finally have him on. Derek is a host on the Mother Folklore podcast and he wrote the books Mother Folklore and Crack Baby. So he's just a really interesting person. I can't wait to share this little chat. We're talking about the Pixies and we got to cover a vast array of topics surrounding them, including the era and their use of language, which really interested me. And I had a great time with Derek talking about this. So as usual, I'm going to go straight into the short introduction of the Pixies and uh, all about their career and how they got from A to B. And then I'm going to go straight into the chat. So thank you for listening. The Pixies have made an indelible mark on alternative music. I'd even go as far to say they've probably contributed to what we think of when we think of alternative music as a concept. Quite often people will wax lyrical about what's now referred to retrospectively as the grunge scene. People often fail to really bridge the gap between what actually happened between Poison and Motley Crue and the MTV megastardom of a young man from Aberdeen in the state of Washington. Punk rock is often compartmentalised as being 70s shock rock and a few lads in squats shouting about how much they hate Ronald Reagan. There's a grey area of Sonic Youth and the Pixies that could never really be pinned down as anything that provided the vital ingredients as to what the 90s would become. The same way the Sex Pistols, Black Flag and Paddy Smith became musical rites of passage for many 90s bands, the Pixies made a mark that was quiet but impactful and diversified the palette of 90s rock. Quite often, glamour and image is attached to even the most anti-establishment bands of these eras. But the Pixies let the music speak for itself. Band disputes, and maybe being ahead of their time, meant they didn't quite reap the benefits of the grunge explosion. Charles Thompson IV, or Black Francis, was born on the 6th of April 1965 in Boston, Massachusetts. His father owned a bar in Los Angeles, California, and Charles spent his early years here. Charles was raised amidst the early stages of an iconic rock movement in the city. Mid-1960s California bands like The Birds were in their early stages and Bob Dylan was setting an example for an emerging counterculture. Charles was uprooted quite a bit between America's east and west coast and he was exposed to an array of different popular 60s music by his parents. Bob Dylan, Donovan, Elton John and The Beatles would have captured his imagination as a young man and demonstrated to him that pop music could be both light and dark. At least that would be my assumption in reading comments by Black Francis himself. His parents joined the Pentecostal church in the late 1970s and sermons of fire and brimstone would have a big effect on young Charles. The beliefs of the Pentecostal church include divine healing and the gift of speaking in tongues. 
I can imagine being exposed to such intense religious devotion and zealousness would have inspired at least some of the religious imagery found in the Pixies lyrics later on. Similar to what Kurt Cobain would have repeatedly said in describing Nirvana, Charles combined the ferocity of late punk bands like Husker Du in the 80s and the pop hooks of the 60s and 70s greats. While punk rock was popular in his formative years, he said quite a bit that it wasn't a driving motivation or a big rite of passage for him, like it was for many others of his generation. In 1983, Charles was enrolled as an anthropology major at the University of Massachusetts. Charles lived on campus and befriended a fellow student called Joseph Alberto Santiago from Yonkers, New York. According to the book Gigantic, the story of Frank Black and the Pixies by John Mendelssohn, Joey came from a background of privilege in the Philippines. His father owned two of three of the first Mercedes cars imported into the Philippines, and the third was owned by President Fernando Marcos. Marcos ruled the country through a dictatorship from 1972 to 1981. Following civil unrest and bombings in Manila, Joey Santiago's father relocated the family to the United States in 1972. Joey was one of six sons and grew up with a keen interest in music. Curiously, Joey, like Black Francis, had learned guitar from the songs of the 60s folk singer Donovan. Both Black Francis and Joey Santiago were less motivated by intellectual pursuits at the University of Massachusetts and more by the draw of forming a band. Black Francis and Joey bonded over the music of Iggy Pop, Husker Du, The Replacements and a mutual enjoyment of marijuana. Soon, an opportunity to partake in a student exchange programme would prove tempting to Black Francis and inspire one of the greatest alternative rock songs of all time. Given the choice to travel to San Juan in Puerto Rico or Cork City in Ireland, he chose a trip to Rio Piedras, Puerto Rico. I guess that the rebel county couldn't really compare to the beauty and allure of the Caribbean. Puerto Rico would not only go on to inspire the lyrics to the haunting and instantly recognisable Where Is My Mind, but this trip also inspired the song Crackety Jones. Crackety Jones was inspired by a roommate that Black Francis had at this time. I've read comments from Black Francis on Puerto Rico, and these came from the Mendelssohn biography that I used to research this episode. I must say, I found some of his comments a little ignorant. It was quite surprising to read some of the things he said in regards to a country that's colonized and currently under the rule of the United States. I just feel like he could have had a bit more sympathy and understanding, but I guess we'll talk more about that in the chat. It was in Puerto Rico he studied Spanish and use of the language became a characteristic on a few pixie songs such as Isla de Encanta and Vamos. The vernacular of Spanish and slang featured on Pixie songs are uniquely Puerto Rican in origin. However, to this day, there has been criticism of the band. The Pixies have never actually played Puerto Rico. And in the chat, we're going to discuss more of this in detail. On their return to Massachusetts, both Black Francis and Joey Santiago dropped out of college. They took up jobs in warehouses to support themselves and slept in a van outside of a Boston Dunkin' Donuts. The two men had a vision for what music they wanted to make. They spent a lot of time watching local bands and building up ideas in their heads. 
Husker Du had punk influences, but had something more experimental under the surface. Husker Du were heavy on distortion and covered 60s pop songs, including Eight Miles High by The Birds and Ticket to Ride by The Beatles. They were not constrained by the punk rock rulebook and they acted as an inspiration to the Pixies and what that band would become. Joey proposed the name Pixies in Panoply, but the end bit was scrapped. Like the Beatles and the Birds, the Pixies had a memorable simplicity to it. I've been referring to Charles Thompson as Black Francis for the majority of this and I apologise if my interchanging of those names has confused any listeners. It was during this time Charles Thompson became Black Francis and no explanation has ever been given as to why or what the real inspiration was. According to the Mendelssohn biography, it was inspired by the names of Billy Idol and Iggy Pop. Despite the lack of rock and roll glamour really attached to the Pixies, it's one of the only myth-making elements to the band themselves. The duo placed an ad in the Boston Phoenix for a rhythm section. Like the grunge artists that followed him, Black Francis's sense of humour could be considered somewhat dry. They asked for musicians inspired by Husker Du and Peter, Paul and Mary. If you don't know who Peter, Paul and Mary are, they're responsible for the song Puff the Magic Dragon. The only response to this ad came from Kimberly Ann Deal, or as she chose to identify, Mrs. John Murphy. Kim Deal had located to Boston with her husband, and well, she didn't even own a bass guitar. Kim was an identical twin, her sister being Kelly Deal. She was a former cheerleader and a Led Zeppelin fan. She and her sister were music lovers and had even formed a folk band together as teenagers. Kim would later teach herself bass and she was primarily a guitar player. Former engineering student John Loverling joined as the band's drummer. John had already played in other bands. Kim had met John at her wedding reception. With the addition of Kim Deal and John Loverling, the Pixies were now a family of four. The band worked hard and started rehearsing five times a week. According to Gigantic by John Mendelssohn, there are two versions of this story. One of the versions is that they rehearsed in John Loverling's dad's garage. The more punk rock and romantic version goes that they rehearsed in a smelly, bug-infested basement at Kenmore Square. During these rehearsals, the Pixies never played covers. The band perfected a sound they'd become known for during these sessions. Their quiet versus loud dynamic is something that would become credited to them. The band played shows around the Boston area. The defining moment for the band was when they supported the band throwing muses. The venue was called the Ratskeller or the Rat colloquially. The venue had a bit of a CBGB's type reputation, having hosted bands such as the Dead Kennedys and the Ramones, and I guess it would have been a hip place to be seen. Quite depressingly, the venue was demolished in the year 2000 to make way for a luxury hotel. And that's quite similar to how CBGB's is now a high-end clothing store. The band caught the ears of Gary Smith during this time. Gary was the manager of Fort Apache Studios. The band didn't look or sound conventional. Their look in particular is noted in the Mendelssohn biography. The novelty of the girl bass player is noted and how the guys in the band look too. Their looks may have been at odds with the music, which was blistering, disturbing, unnerving, 
but brilliant. Their rhythm section could shake the room. Smith knew he had come across something truly great. On a postcard to Charles, Gary Smith said he wouldn't rest until the band became world famous. This episode is mainly focused on the first three Pixies albums. Like how I covered the Rolling Stones, my aim is to chronicle the music that solidified the band in people's minds. Those albums are Come On Pilgrim, Surfer Rosa and Doolittle. The Pixies in this incarnation I speak of now had quite a short run. So now it's time to talk about the music. The band recorded a 17-track demo called The Purple Tape, and that cost about $1,000. The money was borrowed from Charles's father. Eight tracks were selected off this demo tape, and those would become the first Pixies album, Come On Pilgrim. Ivo Watts Russell was the head of the label 4AD, whose other acts included Throwing Muses, The Birthday Party, who I've already covered, and The Cocteau Twins. It took him a while to get the Pixies, and perhaps he was jaded by the influx of lazily labelled goth rock or post-punk that had emerged in the 80s. The vocals were not recorded in studio, and this is what gives Black Francis and Kim Deal's vocals that extra kind of intensity. Those were recorded in an empty warehouse space with wooden floors. The Pixies would become known for those quiet, loud dynamics, but also a certain ambience that is felt on the first three albums especially. Songs like Caribou and Levitate Me demonstrate all of this. Vamos and Isla de Encanta are featured here. Isla de Encanta, which is either deliberately or non-deliberately, an erroneous version of Isla del Encanto, meaning Island of Enchantment. This is a nickname for Puerto Rico. And the next album to talk about, of course, is Surfer Rosa. The album has provided so much inspiration since its release. PJ Harvey, Billy Corgan and Kurt Cobain have commented that the album impacted their artistry in a big way. The mysterious and sexy album cover is a photograph of a topless flamenco dancer. This was taken by the photographer Simon Larbalastier, who'd contributed photos to all of the Pixies' albums. He'd also taken the photo that was the album art for Come On Pilgrim. In this photo, the dancer is flicking her dress up, posing sensually for the camera, and there's a crucifix and a torn poster in the background. The image combines sex appeal and Catholicism before Like a Prayer by Madonna even came out. The technique that Larbalastier used in creating the mysterious and aged quality the photos have is called solarization. This is achieved when negatives are reversed in tone through exposure. This technique was perfected by Man Ray and Lee Miller. I got this insight from Snap Galleries online. Larbalastier, however, claims this kind of happened by accident due to cold temperatures in the studio. This would probably be a good time to also apologise if I butchered this photographer's name. I really tried my best. (laughs) Surfer Rosa was released in March of 1988 and produced what is arguably the Pixies' most recognisable song, and that's Where Is My Mind? 
The song was resurrected in 1999 on the release of the movie Fight Club. The song retains that atmospheric and cavernous sound they're known for. Kim Deal's haunting vocal contrasts the wild and unrestrained howls of Black Francis. It evokes a lonely emotion, one of being lost, misunderstood and alienated. It was used to symbolise the climax of the Fight Club protagonist's mental break. Steve Albini and the Pixies were practically made for each other and I'm sure this wasn't lost on Kurt Cobain. Albini's band Big Black contain a similar chaos and nihilism under the surface. This was more than punk rock, this was dark, introspective and menacing, all at the same time. Gigantic featured a vocal lead by Kim Deal and it's become a crowd-pleasing favourite despite its arguably dodgy lyrics and theme. Well, NME had this to say about Surfer Rosa. Pixies have put a viciously eccentric but very subtle curve into the rock they play and replay. If they're enticing a few folks in with a promise of cheap old-style raucous titillation, it's because they want to cheat and humiliate them publicly, to smack them in the face for their submission to sleaze. Surfer Rosa is still repeatedly listed as a classic album right now, and it's because it manages to just not date. These albums could have been made in 2018 or 2006 rather than 1988. Surfer Rosa also contains the tracks Bone Machine and Break My Body. Themes of mutilation and violence find themselves across a few Pixie songs and this becomes more jarring with the release of Doolittle in 1989. Doolittle is the final Pixies album I'm going to cover for this episode. Their career is quite complex to cover, uh, Kim Deal's exits mainly being the point of contention. This album was important to me and to many others. I've had an appreciation of the innovative and unique rock sound they pioneered. Their timeless qualities are rarely rivaled. Doolittle was released in April of 1989 and produced by Gil Norton. The tracks for this album were written largely during the European tour of Surfer Rosa. Doolittle was, in my opinion, just a very tight album. Themes heard here evoked the fire and brimstone of Baptist sermons, the descent of a soul into hell and imagery of whores and virgins. This is particularly heard on my favourite Pixie song, which of course is Hey. The song which seems to detail a tale of adultery committed by a husband against a long-suffering wife, or Mary, was said to be inspired by rumours Charles heard about his own parents. Debaser contains the lyrics about slicing up eyeballs, and that of course evokes the 1929 surrealism film Un Chien Andalou by Louis Buñuel and Salvador Dali. Black Francis uses wordplay to refer to Andalusia in Spain, another nod to his fascination with Latin culture. Monkey Gone to Heaven is themed on environmentalism and man's relationship with the planet and the creator. Hebrew numerology is referenced in the lyrics, the devil is six and God is seven. Black Francis screams this like a wild man or a preacher warning a congregation of impending doom. Here Comes Your Man has probably been a staple at many an indie disco since its release. 
The song was written by Black Francis when he was about 14 or 15 and it appeared on a demo as far back as 1987. The song appears to be sort of romantic and even made an appearance in the 2008 film 500 Days of Summer. While ever the optimist, I always chose to believe that it was romantic or maybe I wasn't listening properly because like the movie I mentioned, it seems to be quite misunderstood. Apparently, to quote Black Francis himself, it's about hobos dying in a California earthquake. Well, I guess there's that. The aim of this little synopsis of the band's story is not to necessarily boycott the other albums. There's just simply so much to talk about. Um, Kim Deal was frustrated with her lack of creative control in the band and formed the Breeders with her sister Kelly in the late 80s. By 1993, the band had broken up. Black Francis announced this during a BBC radio interview. He formed Frank Black and the Catholics after this. The Pixies reunited in 2003, but Kim Deal left again in 2013. To be honest, I'm not really interested in covering the drama and the in-band disputes here. There's absolutely no denying that the Pixies set alternative rock on a certain trajectory within a short burst of phenomenal material. Their quiet, loud dynamics and surrealist lyrics certainly influenced what came after them. And on the off chance that you haven't really heard much of the Pixies, you haven't heard Surfer Rosa or Doolittle, maybe today is the day to start. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I suppose thank you, Derek, for joining me today. For oh, it's this, absolutely my pleasure. This episode. This has been long overdue. I wanted to actually record something with you so long ago and <laughs> <I> never <laughs> did. So I'm really glad that um that we're finally doing this. Um so, so am I. Yeah. <laughs> and I had a lot of fun on Mother Folklore. That was really fun. And uh, mm-hmm. it was just uh, really fun to talk about talk about an irish band like that i know i consider them an irish band so no i I do too i was it was just great to have your insights as well on on the pogues from that perspective as well and how how significant they are in irish culture and yeah we are looking forward to having you back soon talk about another significant irish band yeah i can't i can't wait i'm really looking forward to that so we're talking about the pixies today so i'll just start by asking you like why 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 the pixies what uh what do they mean to you and what is it about them do you think that makes them special but um from your perspective mainly i would say now that uh, for me the pixies well it was the moment that i kind of became properly interested in music in that i always kind of knew chart music was there and i would have kind of um, had an interest in top of the pops on those occasions that we were allowed to watch it um it wasn't generally it was kind of frowned upon in the house but i think the pixies was the first time i realized that there's a whole world of music behind kind of um what was kind of uh, being peddled uh, the whole uh, what was available in the charts and that's actually music was a kind of a whole world that there was um that, that, the, that was something you could get really obsessed with and then you could, it was the first and they were the first time a band i thought that you wouldn't expect another person to have heard of them but if they did they might become your friend and the idea that that the, that connection between music taste and personality i suppose was um which is such a big part of being a teenager and forming groups the pixies of the moment that happened 
Yeah, I think for 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 young people, especially when you're like from maybe age 13, 14 up to maybe 17, 18, before you kind of start discovering yourself, like music really does inform who you are. And it does kind of because obviously when you're a teenager, you think you're smart and everybody else is stupid. So when you hear bands that you relate to or lyrics that you relate to, you know, you think, oh, I'm cool. I'm in this cool club now. I get this. But, you know, all these people don't get it, but I get it. And then you kind of meet your you meet your tribe and you meet the people that, uh, that kind of get you mm. through music. Yeah, and- I, they really were. And I suppose I would have kind of, I would have been getting into them around, around the time they were, um, I guess in, in breaking up. It was, so it would have been around 1991 or so. My brother, my older brother, he went to school in, in, in the city center. And so he was able to kind of go to, um, go to record shops and stuff on his way home and kind of find out things about music. And he would have had access to the, so that, that, to that beforehand and he would have seen their last gig in Dublin before they split up which was in the Point Depot and they were they were close to getting very big and they unluckily for them they broke up right before grunge happened right before like um I think Tromplement their last album or their last album from the phase when they were properly active and count their reunion stuff that came out just a, a few weeks around the time of that Smells Like Teen Spirit came out which didn't become big straight away. But if they stayed on a little while, they would have definitely cashed in on that on that boom. A lot of bands that influenced grunge went on to have, you know, big hits in the later 90s by being rediscovered and they missed out on all that. But that was around the time I was kind of getting to know them. And like my, my older brother didn't like me listening to his kind of CDs or tapes at all. So it was actually Friends in the neighborhood who introduced me to the Pixies. And I just remember my, my mind being blown. It was so different from the Michael Jackson's and the Phil Collins's, as well as the, even the, the Bon Jovi's and Guns N' Roses, which what I would have thought was the, was the absolute outer limit of hardness and music. Yeah, I think Bon Jovi really had a moment here. <laughs> <laughs> they really did. They really did. I mean, like, they're kind of, yeah. Okay, so the boys like them because they're kind of like, I suppose, cool and hardcore. And then the girls all fancied john bon jovi so they really did have that and i mean i think just slain that the slain being a phenomenon that kind of tradition of slain all these stadium bands kind of did really well in ireland like the queens mm. and the bon jovis and I, like yeah, there is I, that thing i think so I th- and i think it's something that 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 kind of that stadium rock is something that people yeah that, that does seem to go down fairly well here and I, yeah i imagine slain is a big part of that and I imagine possibly that um, there, that it all originated at a time when it was very hard. It was very hard to make live music in the eighties, I suppose. And when Slane came along, it was a huge release for people. Like um, a lot of bands, Irish bands, would have, in the seventies would have moved to London because there was no real outlet. We don't have the population, and that's why I'm never too hard on people that go to London. It's like. I understand wanting to be in a in a bigger sphere and and wanting to be heard, and I mean that's what musicians want at the end of the day. But even it used to be that if you played for a large band, if they played one gig in Ireland in the in the nineteen eighties, they would have had to register as a, as a taxable business and file kind of annual returns and things. That it was really there was a lot of red tape associated with one gig yeah. in Ireland, and that's why, as well as bands moving to London, a lot of bands just would not come here in mm. the. 1980s and it took it took actually kind of um a lot of work by promoters in the in the back rooms and it took our uh, probably albert reynolds becoming t-shirt who came from a music promotion background that's wild i didn't forget. know that <laughs> yeah he used to he used to show bands as well as running the kind of uh, other businesses and then running and the would, country <laughs> but, 
from show bands to being a Taoiseach. It was crazy. It's a funny thing, but you often find like a lot of um, a lot of Irish politics. There isn't a funny overlap between Irish politics and music. Like Jackie Healy Ray would have learned politics when he was um, in and an emigrant in an emigrant musician playing kind of gigs at democratic fundraisers and other kind of Irish American events in New York and Chicago. And that's when he saw how the kind of the clienty kind of um, the, the, what they call the uh, pork barrel politics system really worked. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to glamorize the Healy Rays, but I suppose <laughs> Jackie Healy Ray does sound like a very, it, it's a good music name. <laughs> it, it really is. And, and he, and possibly because of that, he, he they figured out branding better than any other political uh, kind of group in Ireland. The, the cap, so much is forgiven or kind of excused that the, if, if someone didn't have the cap and the accent, they could not say some of the things they say. Yeah. And I mean, it goes this, I think I talked, I think it was with you. I talked about, I probably did tip on it. We did with the Pogues. We were talking about how, you know, they had a very strong look as well as a strong sound. And that mm. kind of, yeah, you could talk about the Healy Race and the flat cap and how that's kind of branded, <laughs> right? But mm. I mean, the Pixies are just like in total opposition to that because they're yes. so, they just look like ordinary guys on the street. This is a huge part of what I suppose what an alternative rock was, that there was there was no glamour. There was no kind of... Um, there, there was there was almost an anti-glamour kind of approach and that they weren't kind of they weren't like wearing leather trousers or kind of or, or um a poodle rock hairdos either they just looked yeah like they were kind of um they were students or kind of or or, or factory workers going from some one place to the other and they weren't their their lyrics weren't entirely personal and they weren't kind of out, they weren't outwardly political the way kind of u2 and the police and kind of and sting and other uh, kind of bands were they were just playing kind of um very kind of um, this was yeah slightly arty but kind of quite kind of a frisky uh, music and it was very much all about the the sense of of it was I think that was one of the things that really got me for that they weren't kind of um, I guess they weren't preaching anything they weren't it, it wasn't kind of um, your your deeply confessional songwriting it wasn't kind of um, like kind of a tub thumping kind of a <laughs> political they were they were just writing songs and largely I mean as well as I, th- I found that it was intoxicating the amount of kind of um, imagery that they used for between kind of the biblical imagery, the the weird kind of um, art house film imagery, all these kind of strange references. And even if you didn't know what they meant, it all sounded really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I think um, that's that's something that Kurt Cobain basically directly lifted in a way. Like, um, mm-hmm. like I mean, yeah, I mean, you talk about the the weird al parodies of smells like teen spirit right for example mm, yeah. right uh, the lyrics of obviously the parody are ridiculous but i mean the lyrics of the real song are also ridiculous but the mm. way kurt cobain does it it sounds very it's got a mystique about it and it sounds like abstract art or something so it, it kind of works you know <laughs> and the pixies mm. are the ones who kind of pioneered that sort of because um black francis's lyrics are all about mutilation and kind of otherworldliness and very yeah, yeah very I mean, abstract yeah there's you get get this abstract and I suppose the big thing is they started they were a college band and they started I suppose yeah in in UMass in, in Amherst in, in Massachusetts it's referenced in one of their um, later songs but they um Black Francis as he would call himself had just come back from his kind of um a year year abroad kind of in, in Puerto Rico or a semester abroad in Puerto Rico and the, the Spanish he uses in his lyrics is very um is very much Puerto Rican slang Spanish as opposed to kind of classical Spanish or um, or, or from Spain Spanish. So um, 
and you could probably argue that a lot of it's very pretentious and that there's an equivalence there of the maybe the irish american tourists kind of suddenly using a little bit of irish or getting a good kind of a tattoo and you could talk a little bit about appropriation but there was um he had a kind of a genuine interest in that and he had a lot of those kind of slightly stonery interests in you know films that only make sense if you're a little if you're in a heightened state of awareness and the kind of the the slightly ruder bits of the bible and and that's the other thing is like when and when they actually formed the band they asked they they put up a kind of a, a flyer in the wall in the college asking for people who um musicians who are interested in husker do and peter paul and mary yeah and peter paul and mary are obviously the band who sang puff the magic dragon right and I, and I think that's really significant because a lot of the Puff the Magic Dragon and the other Peter Moore, Poor and Mary stuff, they're songs that on one level, the lyrics kind of mean something silly and fun, but on the other level, they can mean something darker or or more druggy or more sexy than than, than outwardly appears. And that seems, that's a huge part of Pixie's lyrics. There's um, the more kind of euphonic or pretty, the actual melody of a Pixie song is usually the more fucked up the lyrics are. Yeah, and it, I suppose it kind of goes back to like, Nursery rhymes uh, mm. have a darker meaning a lot of the time. Like, was it Ring Around the Rosie is about the Black Plague? I've often heard that. I don't know whether that's an yeah. urban legend or not. But um, it's that, that, yeah, that does seem to be because you yeah, have the pocket full of posies and yeah. uh, and the, and, the, and the tissue we all fall down. It does seem certainly. I mean, there's a very strong argument that it's about the Black Death, and similarly, you know, Rock by Baby has that kind of very dark ending. And... Yeah, yeah. And yeah, like, the, you know, in, in De Bezer especially, and he's, there's the lyric slicing up eyeballs, and it's really, mm. it's really disturbing. It makes you wince mm. when you hear it. It's about the, was it the Salvador Dali? Yeah, there, there, yeah. there was an art, yeah, the Dali movie on Chien Andalou, and that's, you know, he references that in the lyrics, Chien Andalusia, which yeah. slightly, slightly mispronounces, but partly because, um, yes, yeah, so I, I imagine so, I mean, like, I think some of those lyrics were actually made up as they went along in that, and he was maybe initially talking about, I think, um, a, 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 something about Andalusia in Spain, as opposed to Chien Andalou, which, um, but, yeah. Yeah, but he, he makes some match sheets. The big thing is he sang what he thought sounded good. And it all yeah. came down to more, I mean, and you, you can analyze the lyrics and what they all mean, but the real big thing for the Pixies has always been that Pixies sound. The kind of the, and the big, the biggest, the, whereas the very prominent bass and drums, it's almost like normally the bass and drums are kind of just very functional in kind of rock music. It's almost, but they almost use, it's almost like the, the vocals and the guitar, which are normally the centerpiece in rock music. They're almost like decorations around the kind of bass and drums, which is like the, which are kind of the, the main thrust. I mean, you think of kind of a, the great Pixies hooks, they're always those Kim Deal bass lines. Yeah, I think the, the genius about them really is that all the songs are so, like, they're so tight. They're so, like, every mm-hmm. song. And it's almost like they just had it down in that Beatles formula, sort of, where they just kept it extremely simple. Like, they found their sound and it's amazing. It's like sometimes these phenomenons, ha- phenomenons happen where these four people get in a room and there's just this chemistry between them musically and mm. it's almost like you couldn't force it and I think that's kind of what happened with that band because okay so these albums are from the late 80s and I mean they still sound really fresh they still sound really fresh like they could have been made last year in Williamsburg 
you know, Fair, <laughs> like can, can, this is a, this is the big thing because uh, I think that like the when I mean, you consider some of the other music that was coming out around that time around kind of ninety eight seven ninety eight eight and you're you're probably looking at you know this is kind of um yeah around the time of maybe probably even af- after Motley Crue but kind of around the kind of the big hair rock kind of band just, you know you're kind of um yeah you're, you're probably Bon Jovi being the most ob- obvious example and some of the cheese and this it was so very different and but the thing is it, it's it's it because it, it influenced music that sounded that came along much later uh, particularly in the noughties all those the band named bands that in the early noughties really were kind of going for that kind of pixie sound it made it it's, it's probably kept it kind of very fresh or right? it makes it feel like you you can't believe it as old as it is yeah that that's kind of what amazes me and like mm. even uh, the local bands i love um just mustard in Dundalk and Larry. Um, Larry actually flew flew to Chicago and got Steve Albini to produce them, which is amazing. Really? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's extraordinary. Because Steve Albini's produced a few Irish acts. He yeah. produced one of the Frames albums, and he produced Adrian Crowley as well. Yeah, I must send you a track actually of Larry's. But um, even in in those two bands, Just Mustard. I hope they don't mind me saying this, but I mean, I can hear <laughs> I can hear the Pixies in them like that contained mm. kind of sound it's almost like there's four walls around them that echo i can hear the i can hear them in those bands whether it's conscious or not like i think the pixies really just created a blueprint and they did it so quietly you know yeah. everybody waxes lyrical about nirvana and i i love nirvana i sound very negative about them today but they are so mythologized and the pixies kind of just quietly made this huge impact and it does make it makes you wonder like how much of kind of being a rock star is about being very good looking and in the way that you know i mean and on one level it's something we normally associate only with kind of very mainstream music but like kurt cobain and jeff buckley a a big part of i mean they were both unusually handsome men and it probably it did contribute to them being being on posters on walls and those kinds of things and that we we probably still like a certain we like a rock a rock band to have a certain rock band story and we like kind of lead singers to have a mysterious kind of a lead singer quality that is kind of um that are, that is attached some way around them looking like a rock star and yeah it's the it's jim morrison way. syndrome <laughs> yes very much so and it's and you find that people still kind of want that to be cultivated and that there's um they, they, there's still expectation that you no know, producing kind of great tunes isn't enough. You still, we, you still want someone to actually have a, do rock star things and and appear like a rock star, which is very funny. Which is it's, it's funny to me, but it's um, it it's human nature. Unfortunately, it's like aesthetics are just a, a big part of the whole package, you know. And then, like when when people get signed to record labels, okay, maybe not now because it just doesn't happen anymore. I feel so mm. sorry for musicians these days. But like even when I was covering Blondie and The Doors and all those like bands, like the very sexy lead singers, and during those times when those bands were being marketed, like they were in photo shoots a lot. Like promotional mm. imagery was very very important. Like this is what they look like, and I'm, I'm sure people listen to those bands seeing them before they heard them at the yeah. same time there is that element of it and same with kurt so kurt cobain took the stripped down um aspects of the pixies music um and then the also the kind of in the aesthetics of not dressing like a rock star even though that became a thing in itself later on 
you know. Yeah, and the, 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 the check shirts, I think the Pixies did wear check shirts for always the closest thing they had to a kind of a combined look. But um, I don't get Kirk Cobain to that for a while. Um, but then again, chances are it's probably because um, that's what you could get in the in the thrift shops. And it was probably what everyone wore around the time. I think um, Kim Deal was saying that, you know, when she was growing up, I think it was in, in Ohio, that, you know, everything, all bands were expected to just be wearing spangles and stuff all the time or kind of van jumpsuits and that was the kind of that was the version of country music, I suppose that was um, that was there at the time, and it was it was it was it was clearly even though it was at one one level it was an unintentional look, and at the same time it was very much a reaction against yeah what, these things. But it's I a big think year. yeah, it was Chris Cornell from Soundgarden said because he was famous, of course, for his flannel shirts and his ducks and his you know that's that look that he had in the in the early nineties, and I think he said that literally they dressed like that because they were in Seattle and Seattle is cold and it was like a yeah. practical decision as well as a fashion statement you know it's funny in a way how the Seattle scene kind of kicked off around the same time as Microsoft and Starbucks which yeah kind of big Seattle firms and so you kind of wonder if one followed the other or not because it seems that the same sort of thing happened in Atlanta with kind of large Atlanta businesses really kind of um uh, re-establishing themselves and you do, I, I do wonder sometimes how much of a you know I mean, we do probably still will have music scenes in cities. I mean, the internet hasn't changed things that much. Yeah, but oh no, absolutely. Yeah. Like Limerick, for example, uh, they've got a really great hip hop scene at the moment. Really interesting mm-hmm. stuff is coming from there. Um, to a small degree, than the hook as well. Like, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think so. And yeah, I'd like to think that yes, people that the, you having a, a, a critical mass of kind of bars that are happy enough to allow live, new live music. And a critical mass of people want to actually go to them. And this is why often you get music scenes often happen in cities that are almost big enough for big tours to go to, but not. Often too, again, people think grunge changed, killed hair metal. But like, yeah, yeah, the Pixies existed before that. Hardcore punk rock existed before that. There was something coming. It wasn't Mm -hmm. like just overnight thing, (laughs) you know. It was built up. I think it was, it was funny because there, there was still some like hair metal. Like I think the kind of the guns, the Lose Your Illusion, Guns and Roses albums came out around that time. Right, they were right around the same time as kind of as Nevermind was really kicking off. But there was a sense, you know, that um, there's a certain genre of music which is kind of often hard to describe. You know, you know, sometimes some genres are named after the fact. Like yacht rock is was named kind of yeah after the fact. There's the school bully's favorite band is a, a certain genre of music right and and guns and roses <laughs> were absolutely that and then years right. later there was it became more of the chili peppers and or kind of i think possibly even kings of leon or, or oasis or oasis would have gone through those things but there was a sense that at, at that point kind of um yeah the nirvana were almost at that stage and but like it was case there was a sense that guns and roses were kind of over even though they were still having kind of some big hits and that nirvana represented something that was actually a little bit new and a little bit exciting just like I was saying when I opened the episode there, it's like Nirvana were the band that kind of brought kids together. Like, you like, like Nirvana? Oh, you like Nirvana? Let's mm. all go to see Nirvana together, you know? And it's kind of like yeah. that in Ireland. I've seen it happen with My Chemical Romance too when I was a teenager. Like, it very much became like a movement based on just common a common interest rather than being anything political. And yet, I do think that there is, I think you do find people, the, the teenagers who are very interested in music tended to actually become interested in, in tended to have strong opinions and other things as well. And you have, the fact that Kurt Cobain spoke openly about being pro, uh, pro-feminist and on some of those issues in the songs, it did actually make people, um, 
teenagers who never thought about it just to actually take that seriously and so on, on some levels you know you actually do that i suppose musicians can have a positive influence in those things and the pixies specifically didn't really have a position on anything interestingly enough they made they briefly alluded to environmentalism in yeah. one song but yeah. not in not in a way that was going to make you not in a way that was going to make you stop by using plastic bags you're shopping or or do anything else yeah they, they alluded to the fact that in a in a, an apocalyptic way and they there were some a lot of apocalyptic references in some of their lyrics but there was um there's always a sense with kind of with nerdy weirdo bands that maybe the apocalypse is a good thing because the world sucks yeah yeah that's kind of that nihilism thing and i think yeah. Yeah, what we're saying about like just nirvana and the pixies and and, and teenager i i t- totally agree with you because like a lot of my friends that were into those bands now are, are very kind of engaged in social justice and thank god like mm-hmm. we all are i think those bands created a safe space for the weirdos as you say so like the world sucks you know there's a reason why all these kids think the world sucks you know yeah and then de- definitely so and like it's and also i think it was um for me the big thing when i mentioned at the start that the pixies was kind of the moment i started getting very interested in music because you know it was it was something that was always that i was always aware of but the idea of albums being kind of like groups of songs being the kind of the unit of music as opposed to the single or the music video was a big thing because they their pixies are very much an album band they have great songs but the idea of an album being kind of of an album being a piece of work that has a start middle and an end they're all kind of connected and that each album has a slightly different feel from the other one that was that that was something that never occurred to me before and always occurred to me since then as being you know the as being very significant it affected the way i made mixtapes it affected the way yes i thought about music entirely and and yeah it was it was something that you probably found that yes uh, surferosa has a certain kind of a feel to it as a certain kind of like a palette of references and when you're listening to it it feels like it's a different color than doolittle and bossa nova feel like there are different colors to it almost yeah it, it, sometimes when you hear when you're young and you hear a great album that's just you're really into it from start to finish it it actually helps you appreciate other music you've more it develops your patience or something you're not trying to just get that quick gratification from one song then you're kind of like oh, yes. i want something else like this you know i want to find the next thing and i feel like i had that experience as well it does and I even if there's some songs say and like a big thing on doodle is there's a song called silver which a lot of people when they had cds would skip over and but when you're listening to it on a tape back in the day and particularly on your walkman and you think maybe I don't like this straight away, but I know the good the, the next song is um is Gouge Away and I'm looking forward to this and or I said, Hey, is it? But um then after you listen, when you listen to it, you, you start when you get start getting maybe slightly kind of um used to some of this the kind of more outwardly accessible songs, then you start kind of really noticing what's great about those other songs. Yeah. It's like you start filling in the gaps then it becomes a, a full picture rather than just like oh, yeah, small and- details. And really get that, yeah. I think Silver is an example of that, and that had that kind of had this kind of weird, kind of creepy. Um, it was like a it was like western. a western, but a, but but a very strange western. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, th- it, I know the song. I know the song you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Doolittle was the one that I was it Doolittle was the one I would have listened to uh, mostly, and I don't even know mm-hmm. where I got it. I don't. Okay, I'm gonna pull out my dark secrets now. There's a lot of music I had through the years I didn't obtain legally uh, oh. <laughs> and 
I feel like it was on a CDR or something. I, I really feel like it was, but I, I um I don't remember. But I felt like I, I really enjoyed it for a long time. I listened to it a lot. Um so yeah, so what you were saying there about how like they are more of an album band than a than a single band. They did have Here Comes Your Man, and that was kind of nearly manufactured to be a single sort of and it kind of went against <laughs> their principles, sort of and in a way, I think it was. It's funny because it still had like the kind of the lyrics still had a darkness, which wasn't immediately obvious unless you went looking for it. And apparently, he um, uh, Black Francis had written the tune when he was a bit younger. He written on a piano, and it has. It's actually it's the only Pixies song that I can actually sing to my kids when they're kind of going to sleep. You know, because you know, has that do 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 do, and and the yeah. But then, whereas and again, they they. They obviously had to, at that particular point in time, they had to put out a video for it. But as we discussed before we recorded, their videos were awful. They just did not. No. They did not care. And at the time, often indie bands wouldn't actually make videos at all because it wasn't um, expected because it was was an additional cost. And it wasn't until, again, around the time, so much of, so many things that would have been great for the Pixies happened the moment they split up. Yeah. I think Spike. Spike Jones went on to become this this very kind of popular hipster kind of film uh, film director. He, he his first music video was for Hundred um, Percent by Sonic Youth, which came oh. out around the time the Pixies stopped. Had Jason Lee's a skateboard in the video. It was a cool video. And then after that, he did the videos for like Sabotage by the Beastie Boys and It's Also oh Quiet by Bjork. It completely changed the way people thought about music videos, particularly the idea that. Yes, cool bands had to have music videos now as well. It wasn't just for Michael Jackson. And, yeah. And that was a thing that, again, if they had if they had held on together for another two years, they probably would have had a cool music video for one of the songs on Tropamont, which, uh, which would have gotten them the airplay and the recognition. Yeah, because, I mean, because they have so strong imagery in their songs, that leaves a whole lot of room for creativity with music videos and how they could have mm. really created that or added that kind of visual element, which they, mm. as we said, they never did. Like, I, I hate, I hate that video for Valoria. Valoria. It makes me insane. Makes it's, me insane. It's, <laughs> it, it, it does. It reminds me of. It reminds me of some of those kind of. Um, it's almost trolling, and they wouldn't have called it that at the time because it, Gloria is a is a relatively accessible song. The song you can like the first minute you hear. It's a song you write almost sing along with the chorus near the on your on your first listening with the end and um they just and bossa nova was a bit more poppy that album was a little bit more kind of um they had more kind of um he was connecting more with the kind of californian surf sense and some other kind of um some other tunes like like that and you had a clean like anna is a clean, fairly um clean sounding song that was almost like um it's on almost like the background music in a in, in a in a hospital waiting room it's so kind of uh it's so benign sounding and javelina as well they, they've got some very kind of like unusually pleasant sounding songs maybe are less troubling which probably could have had done some airplay if they if they played the game a bit more and maybe they they almost felt like they were trolling trolling the industry by saying by 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 coming that close and stepping away and that's what but then I think the moment that I think that people started really knowing them and I felt that like a person who wouldn't necessarily know a lot about music would actually, uh, you, you, could, you could almost start assuming they'd heard of the Pixies was Fight Club. 
Yeah, I was just going to say, yeah. Then that's the one that, I mean, I suppose, like, okay, I was like, I can't, I couldn't remember them in their heyday, but mm-hmm. I, I do remember hearing that song a lot around the time Fight Club came out when I was a kid. And it's almost mm-hmm. like it's in my memory as something that came out around that time, even though it's older than mm-hmm. it was. Does that make sense? No, yeah, completely. And and for a lot of people that that is that's that is when it came out the same way, you know, I suppose sometimes sometimes a song and during the 80s and 90s, a lot of songs were rediscovered through ads and background music and films like a almost all the songs in the Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction soundtrack were kind of rediscovered kind of old gems. And this was this day, this appeared was this started being a way to um, re-promote old existing music instead of having to deal with um Instead of having to deal with new bands or discover someone new, you could um, like they they found in the nineties. The, the late nineties was the was the big time for the movie soundtrack, the compilation. The, yeah, and you probably found the films like Cruel Intentions and uh, Empire Records and and the current Tarantino ones. They they could dig deep into recent or existing music instead of having to kind of find the new next Ennio Morricone or the next kind of Simon Garfunkel. They could just do that. Yeah, I um, I was today. <laughs> Before mm-hmm. I was, I was writing notes today, and I was also um, watching old ads from nineties telly. I don't know what brought me, <laughs> brought me there. I just was, but yeah, like it made me think just about um, the Guinness adverts and and stuff like that. And I, when I was watching, um, it was a Guinness advert. I think it was from ninety four. I was just looking at it, going like, God, they were really into the whole sixties aesthetic. But like, there's a mm-hmm. bit of like retro Tarantino vibes going on here as well. And it's just it's really like it exposes what was kind of fashionable and and cool at the time because Guinness would have probably tried to be very current, you know. Yeah, and they they really did. I think it, it was in the it was in the nineties that you had this whole new Guinness ad campaign. It, it started with the man dancing waiting for a pint was this kind of real turning moment, and then that that song the kind of the, that was used in the background of that ad became kind of a, a hit off the strength of it. Which and before that, all these every any time a Levi's ad came out, the song would always become a minor hit there was a levi's ad with brad pitt before he was famous which had um 20th century boy with by t-rex yeah which just hit, hit the charts right after that and similarly the um i just want to make love to you because um song oh yeah bad coke ads they, yeah and he actually you almost you probably found at the time that it was a for a record company it was a great way to um give give songs on their back catalog a second shot and yeah like fight club do you think fight club really would have helped resurrect i think so I, I, because a big thing was you know, you know there's this kind of meme at the moment from the wolf of wall street there's, there's a meme of, of leonardo caprio sitting up pointing at the tv because he recognizes something yeah and um, that's basically like every Pixies fan in the world was like doing that at fight the end of Fight Club, and yeah. it was it got people talking. A lot of those people happened to be kind of journalists and things. It got people talking with the Pixies again, and because this was also around the time that Napster was had just begun, and it was the worst possible time to have your music rediscovered because people could just get it for free. Yeah. And so in that sense, but it did. People then started saying, "Oh, what's that cool song at the end of Fight Club?" and and so yeah, that, that 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 did lead to it, and then you found, then you got the as as the noughties began, you got the what the what's become the kind of the semi-ironic but not really kind of um, slowed down acoustic cover versions of popular songs. Things I, I the, hate that. I'm not a fan of that at all. Now, <laughs> you know, I've, 
I have a theory, Jan, Jen, about well, that whole thing. Is that there's a concept in there's a concept in music called I think um called there's a there's a it's a switched on pop is one of my one one of my other favorite um, music pod, podcasts. They talk about kind of a hot, hot tension or hotness in music is caused by a tension between this kind of um, an A minor or a minor chord kind of melody which which t- they tend to sound a little bit sad and then kind of a very kind of hot funky kind of beat so when a song is actually when a song kind of like crazy and love sounds really good you're wondering why it sounds so why it has that great kick it's one of the reasons is the melody would probably sound sad on its own but the kind of the, the, the tempo and the and the and the bass line kind of pull it all together so when you actually just just take the melody on its own and slow it down and sing it sadly you're actually making it less complicated you're actually yeah. taking you're taking one of the things that 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 creates a kind of a certain magical tension and you're just simplifying it down to um elevator music almost and it's yeah it's like when yeah it, you're you're only giving people like um it's like you're just giving some of the tomato sauce and you're not giving them the chips yeah exactly that's exactly it or like eating like a, a dry chicken with no seasoning you know yeah. or no sauce on top of it just boiled chicken like um, it's still chicken <laughs> But it doesn't taste as good, you know. It's kind of like that, you know. The song's still good, but it's just not got that hmm. spice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You see, you're you're kind of taking away a big part of what makes it, and that's and that that was you started seeing some Pixies cover versions, you know, turning up and along those lines, around like a, as the noise progressed, and that was a it was a shame. Yeah, but it's and then I suppose by as 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 time went on they were they were big enough to be mentioned in television shows like I think there's a there was a gag in how much to other about the pixies which you know seems seems would have been inconceivable a few years earlier but that, that they were actually well well known enough for a mainstream NBC sitcom to reference them and expect their audience to know who they were yeah it's just I think like Kurt Cobain dying as well uh yeah I feel like he would have really I think he would have helped resurrect them if he had lived longer too. I think that would have, yeah, that whole timeline would have extended way longer if they didn't break up and Kurt Cobain didn't die. Like there's just like almost like a, yeah, it's like it just abruptly ends there and then it kind of gets picked up a little bit, but. I think so. And I think possibly, yeah, that's the kind of the the late nineties, there was maybe new, new, there were new scenes started happening and maybe people was, um, there was a gravitation away some of that. I don't know if there was a, I remember like Evan Dando gave a really tasteless interview. He's the, obviously from the Lemonheads. He gave a very tasteless interview, kind of um, like which in which he basically resented the fact that like he said, oh, if I, if I died this year, kind of Lemonheads, we, if I died in order that, that year instead of Kurt Cobain, we'd be more famous. And it, just, it was an astonishingly kind of ignorant and self-absorbed thing to say. Yeah. It's kind of like, I mean, um, yeah, it's kind of like saying, like being jealous of somebody's tragic demise. <laughs> it's a very strange, it was, strange it was, way of going. The I think the thing is he had um, the the Lemonheads were due to play they're due to play Glastonbury and he had um, he arrived late because he had been um, I guess uh, enjoying the company of some fans uh, with, with some extra substances and he thought if he had died that morning instead of arriving late because he got booed when he arrived as he would be because you know. Like people have paid money and they're waiting to glow heads and he arrived late and he was in, a, in bad condition. He's like, oh, if, if, if instead of me arriving late and then booing me, somebody announced that I had died, I'd be the greatest rock star ever. 
Yeah. Those people would be able to frame those tickets, but like, you know, get over yourself. Just you know, turn up on time for your gigs to your fans. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, yeah, I can't get my head around that either. I mean, maybe it's true, but that's not really, if you're not around to, if you're not around for it, then what payoff is that? You know, the exactly. same thing for Kurt Cobain, like whatever. There's, hmm. Like, I always find it very, uh, I don't mean to go off topic again, but I always, this piece of irony just always sticks in my head watching the Nirvana unplugged and he's talking about trying to buy Lead Belly's guitar for $500,000 and the audience gasps like oh my god and he's like joking huh? tried to get David Geffen to buy it for me but he said no you know ha 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 stage mm. banter and now these days his cardigans are selling for like what 25,000 quid more his guitars are selling yeah. for $500,000 it's it's re it's like it's so depressing and sad to me that that's kind of what he became then it's like this artifact yeah, in history it's tragic and, you know yeah i suppose that, that's in some ways yeah it, it, it's something he would have been very much against himself but I bet it, you know this supply and demand kicks in it, it, it is a, a funny thing and and estate management is always a tricky thing where um we but and yeah, you could probably do think that. Yes, it, 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 it's 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 a strange business. How I mean, but you do have guitar collectors who are very interested in those kinds of things, and it's just prophetic. Even cardigans, you know? but, but yeah, but particularly for cardigans and stuff, then they're they were not supposed to be kind of anything special. Like I mean, it's an odd one. Um, Kurt Cobain was actually referenced in letters of um, notes to self by Emily Pine, one of the the prize winning kind of memoir in Ireland a couple of years ago. In which she mentions that she's talking about her wild years and that she met Kurt Cobain in a bar and down the end he was smoking light cigarettes and she thought he was a lightweight. Yeah, it was a it was a funny one because but um, but yeah, the, but whereas the Pixies never had the you, you, there's no real rock star stories about the Pixies other than that they had um massive disagreements with Steve Albini when they're recording Sephirosa and then yeah. they kind of had bad kind of live disagreements when, yep. in their last Black Francis and and Kim Deal frenemies to say the least it seems like it seems, uh, it's a funny one and it's been said and the pixies probably one of the one of the most obvious examples and in a kind of a cool alt indie band the girl can be the lead singer and if she's you know looks a certain way she can be the drummer if she's kind of cool and she can be the, the bassist if she's you know kind of very hip but in a band of an otherwise male band she cannot be the lead guitarist Right, and this is a, it's a it's a funny way that this this there was this un, it seemed like this unwritten rule and the, the idea that the trope of the female bassist in the otherwise male band and Sonic Youth and Smashing Pumpkins and several others, it's funny because it, it it did send out this message that this is high as a as a woman can rise in this band. Yeah, and yeah, then, you're right. It it is a cliche actually. It is like a nineties mm-hmm. alternative cliche. I think even Black Flag had a female bass player. I think she was called Kira Rossler. And like that was a very that was a very macho like a lot of machismo in that band, very and, much so. Yeah, and I think she used to come out on stage kind of dressed like Madonna, almost being like "fuck you guys," you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Kind of like yeah. you know, I'm going to completely cramp your style because. You know. <laughs> and she, I think she did leave. She did leave the band. I think she was just fed up of the the machismo and the the you know the band got it. So I I I re- I'm a big fan of Henry Rollins and I I love what he's done in the past say 20 years, but mm-hmm. there is some elements of misogyny in Black Flag and I have to say it like you know I kind of turned a blind eye to it when I was younger, but now it's kind of very hard for me to listen to. So I can't imagine yeah. what that experience would be like for her, you know. 
Oh god, yeah, I'd say I can imagine it'd be exhausting being kind of paired up with those lads on a tour or the situation like that. I can only imagine. But Kim Deal and the Pixies did have the last laugh because uh, uh, Black Francis solo career tanked and yeah. just absolutely tanked. And then the Breeders had one of the kind of big crossover kind of um, grunge hits with Cannonball. Yeah, and I think the Breeders are one of those, I hate calling them a spin-off band, right? But you know what I mean? Mm. They're one of the few bands that kind of broke off another that are really, are almost as well-venerated as the the band she came from with the Pixies. Mm. Like, they have their own individual kind of um, thing. They have their own own fan base, their own kind of, uh, people admire them for being the Breeders rather than being Kim Bedeal from the Pixies band, the Breeders. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, very much so. I, I think that I, again, again, it was a, it, there was there were kind of members of other bands. That, 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 I think there was a one of Throwing Muses was in them as well, and there were maybe one or two others from different bands and Kelly Deal as well. But yeah, it was it was it was significantly different enough for people to enjoy in the row, and they had yeah some kick and tunes which which were which people found accessible in a way. Whereas I mean, um, yeah, just I remember when the, I remember when the Frank Black kind of um, first album came out. People were like, what, "What's going on here?" Uh, just, it just didn't. His first single was this Beach Boys cover, right? Which, uh, and it didn't. It just didn't land. Um, there was, uh, he had there was. I remember there was a couple of Beach Boys references in some of other stuff, like the first line, "A wave of mutilation is um, cease to resist." It's a reference to that Beach Boys song, the Charles the, Manson the, one. Co- yeah, the one they cut off all their albums because it's become this idea, yes, that, that um, nobody wants to be giving Charles Manson any royalties. Of course, it's very, I, I actually talked about this with my friend Aoife on um, the Nick Cave episode. And there is this thing in the late 80s and it comes from the punk rock, post-punk um, thing. It's like this nihilistic kind of like using this deliberately very edgy, very confrontational imagery for, to get a reaction. So yeah, referencing Charles Manson and and all those kind of things. Nick Cave did it too, just using these really mm. like dark yeah. subject, this really dark subject matter in a way maybe to contrast the very hippy dippy or soft rock stuff that came in the seventies, just to be really like edgy. Yeah, mm. it, it, it probably it felt like an easy win, but I suppose again, it was it maybe wasn't necessarily kind of um, getting people to to think about kind of uh, maybe their own. Maybe it wasn't trying to make people uncomfortable with their own decisions in a way to make, make them think something worthwhile. It was just to say, "Hey, look at this." So it's like, um, yeah, it, it was it was it was slightly petulant, slightly uh, tantrumy to do that. I think, but um, that's just my view. Whereas sometimes you actually find kind of a, a lyric that sticks in your head. And we mentioned Patty Smith earlier. I remember when we were when I was a child and I was we were in town for some reason. I was walking with my parents, holding my parents' hand my dad's hand around my mum's hand and I saw these punks sitting in the green and uh, my dad wanted to walk past them quickly because you know punks are terrible and one of them had the one of them had the had Jesus died for his own sins not mine written in the back of his leather jacket right I remember, I remember seeing that when I was like five or six years old yeah whoa being yeah being stunned and as and then and dad tried my, my parents tried to make me um walk faster and i just remember afterwards why would someone say that why would you know someone you know just like not want kind of what what you know, Jesus would offer and i never forgot those i always wondered why why, why would someone do that and it just, it absolutely stuck as a mm. as a piece as a lyric in my head for years and then i found it patty smith says oh wow that's, that's what cool. that guy was interested <laughs> in that sense that's it whereas kind of like it, it feels like kind of maybe just kind of cheekily referencing Charles Manson would never be as powerful as that. 
No, I think, yeah, even with the Paddy Smith, I think when you're a little child, things like that can be shocking and I would nearly say nearly upsetting, you know, because mm-hmm. they're very, it's very kind of scary and it goes against all the, the things you're being taught as a child simultaneously. <laughs> so you're seeing this going, <laughs> why are these adults, I mean, they could be 15, but you'd be like, why are these adults saying that? But Jesus, you know, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it could be scary, you know, it could be scary. And then that, the, the kind of, the little mini kind of, that upset would stick in your head like that really upset me that day when I saw that and then as an adult you're like ah I kind of get it now but Mm. in my innocent little child brain that that was that was just scary and wrong you know (laughs) you know uh, I think yeah so let's see um so didn't didn't Black Francis he had a solo career did I imagine that he went into some kind of country folky Route. I he, know. He, he formed a band called the Catholics, which I thought was very significant in that because there was the Catholicism just seemed to keep turning up in his music in a very kind of, um, you know, kind of naughty way. And I, as well as, as, well as at that point, I kind of moved on in that I felt that, you know, what, what he had given me with the Pixies was enough. And I was, you, you can make kind of a, um, and I was ready to step aside. Well, I, so I kind of stopped following his career a bit then. And, but I just felt like kind of those, five albums four and a half albums if you will if you can't come on pull it was a half album they um i just felt that they were just a, were a great gift and then when he was doing these other things he what he was making he was probably addressing a different community it wasn't really for me anymore i just wasn't when the pick when i found when they started re-releasing kind of um like the purple tape and a new new pixies content with new members i wasn't i felt like you know that's um they're recording for someone else now yeah, it, it sometimes feels like they're just getting other people to fill in the gaps so that they can do live shows as a kind of a nostalgia thing for fans yeah. and want to hear the songs like, but it's not, flogging a dead horse is a bit cruel, but I would be kind of be like, it's not, they're not existing to be the Pixies as in to work as the Pixies and create new stuff. They're existing as the Pixies to just serve a need. Yeah, and I mean, and again, and there was, like, I even, as I said, my brother had seen them back in 1991, the kind of Planet Sound tour. And even then, they their live reputation was, you know, it was, it, it was solid. It was, but they, they would have, they would have been very kind of um, proud of not being, a, not putting on a kind of Motley Crue style kind of pyrotechnic show. It was, they went on, they weren't trying to, it was never about kind of, you know, performance, kind of um, shredding guitar, kind of solos and, you know, um, jumping around and kind of fireworks or anything. They were up and just, it was, they probably, the live, they, was, they were in albums first, then songs, then probably, then live kind of stuff would be, I think would be um, a fair, a fair kind of um, stacking of, of their charms. Yeah. So in, in that sense, and I think the context of noughties and tens, live shows by by artists who've been reformed was always oh we're not getting royalties anymore because of napster and because of other uh, streaming services so we're touring instead yeah and i think in that context like if it was a case they came back together and i put out you know great albums the way robert plant decided yes right rather than doing a led zeppelin kind of world tour i'd rather make good albums than Alison Krauss. i'd have a lot more respect for that yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think Robert Plant's albums actually recently are great. They're really yeah, good. There's, Genuinely there's, there's good music. There's no one his generation who's putting out new music of that quality apart from himself. Like Yeah, I can't think I can't think of anybody mm-hmm. at all. I can't. <laughs> um so is there anything else you want to add that maybe you didn't get a chance to to put in? 
about the just, pixies. I suppose, yeah, but probably again, um, thinking of the kind of that, that shock factor, the, the real pixie sound, I always felt was kind of, um, you know, particularly when you know, kind of teenagers listened to it, it felt kind of, even they didn't, they didn't swear much in their lyrics, but it felt really kind of naughty and rude, like there was um, the way they screamed, like the way kind of, um, the way Black Francis screamed and the way Kim deals kind of vocals in the background, the way it kind of, the, it sounded really kind of, um, it was, it felt very sexual. Maybe Tame is the most obviously song where it, it sounds like they're, oh, like, like they're having sex almost more than that. The, the, there was something that while other songs might have referenced this that was in the charts, it felt like the, they felt like they were the dirtiest band around. Yeah, I, I always felt like the, their lyrics were kind of warped, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, like they're, 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 they're sending you to a dark place in your brain you don't really want to go to. <laughs> they, but yeah, not by saying anything very explicit. It's like suggestive. So yeah. it's not, you know, because there's a lot of look, there's a lot of explicit lyrics out there and they aren't that exactly. It's almost like they just send you to that place in your head and you're like, OK. Yeah. This is a bit, this is, this is dark and and kind of weird, as you say, a little bit dirty and yeah, yeah, I can definitely hear that. Yeah. And I think that was one of the things in that too. Yeah. Well, obviously that maybe like you would have heard a lot of uh, maybe um, rude rap lyrics and kind of alluding to certain things and other songs, which where we were had of them. I felt like some of the, um, some of the sexual references in, in a lot of Poodle Rock was, it was more like Benny Hill or something like in in ACDC and other bands. It was like, um, they were, they were kind of cheeky double entendres. It was kind of a schoolboy humor rather than the fact that the Pixies sounded like, you know, they were just, you know, really enjoyed sex and their <laughs> music sounded like it, you know? Yeah. And, and that felt far more kind of, I guess, uh, alarming and arresting than just, you know, than, than ACDC talking about giving the dog a bone. Yeah. Or like pour some sugar on me. Uh, oh, yeah, gosh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Great I, su- I suppose our, I suppose a rocks out of the question was that one of the yeah, theirs as well. <laughs> oh my god, um, there was something I actually wanted to ask you: how he kind of treats the the Spanish language because, of course, he, he travels to Puerto Rico to learn yeah. Spanish, and like you're yeah, a, was... kind of a linguist yourself. So, I mean, how do you, how do you feel when people use Irish when they kind of obviously don't speak Irish, like? Yeah, that's that, that's it's a, it's a good question, and on one level, yes, that obviously, um, obviously, kind of a Black Francis spoke some Spanish. He was a Spanish major in UMass. I don't think he finished his degree, but he lived in Puerto, Puerto Rico for a while. A lot of Spanish speakers don't like the, don't enjoy his Spanish content. Then, while um, like I know there's um there's there's been there's a, there's a great article I was reading by a Puerto Rican Pixies fan who said you know they like Isla de Encanta de Encanta is a reference to Puerto Rico but it's a it's a slight play on the the, the island's nickname and but then and you go and oh my golly has um and there's a lot of discussion on boards and what and how to translate or oh my golly and what does it mean and people say well it's terrible Spanish and as well Puerto Rico is a funny country because legally the official language of Puerto Rico is English. And for courts and stuff like that, because it's part of the United States. But um, obviously, people speak Spanish, but they speak a very different kind of Spanish than they do in Mexico or in Argentina. Yeah, and there's obviously going to be some kind of patois there as well. Like it's yeah. There's a, and then, but I do. Yeah, and uh, Joey Santiago from the the guitarist from Pixies, as well as from the Philippines. And, right. And I remember. Um, Steve Albini, like so he but he would have been from a fairly wealthy family and that he was able to go to university in the United States. And I remember Steve Albini at the time saying they were um pro Marcos, his family's pro Marcos. Right. 
which is uh, I thought well he's never mentioned it he doesn't have to be held to scrutiny if it's one thing if he if he had said kind of pro Marcos remarks but um he didn't he didn't so that was, that was I felt like Steve Albini was being a bit bitchy but yeah and also I, like your family can have beliefs that you don't share do you know what I mean like sure he was living yeah. he was leading his own path it's yeah no of course and that, that's that's fair enough but in terms of yeah the like obviously i found i thought it was really interesting that i oh it always surprised me when i started getting into music how we were almost only getting anglosphere music that i thought surely don't don't france and spain and all these other countries like why does so much of the the world's music come from two or three countries why do why do we get so much of it from these and why is some of it in, so much of it in english and a huge part of the soft power of the English language is pop music. Yeah. And so it's it's always something I was very kind of conscious of. And and the fact that he used some Spanish was interesting. It did it, it did interest me a lot. I had never thought about the context of kind of white privilege or stuff. There were some examples of or kind Irish. of fetishizing kind of Spanish a little bit sort of. Yeah. A little yeah. bit, and the idea that say that you maybe that it it, it provided a certain amount of cover that it was that that the language was decorative and it didn't have to mean anything. And but he did use English in that way too. Aerosmith on the permanent vacation album, they had a song with some Irish in it, and it it was I think it's the last track in the album, and it used Irish, but probably it didn't. When you're listening to it, it doesn't sound like it's being spoken by a native speaker. And it probably is being, they probably wanted it to be just sound mysterious, like kind of like something a druid or a, um, <laughs> or, an or an enchanted kind of elf woman might say, as opposed mm -hmm. to, and, and that is, I mean, it's, it, it, it's, it's one thing, but they probably felt they had permission to do that because of Clannad and Enya and maybe some, sometimes the way people were experiencing Irish was as a kind of a, as a background, as a, it was in background music type contexts. And for some people who maybe aren't acquainted with the language struggle in Ireland, they might think that's all they know about it. And it's a funny one, all right. And on one level, you'd, on one level, you don't want to discourage people from using it. And there's so little, I guess there's so little ling linguistic diversity in pop music as it is. Yeah, it's, I, I never, ever thought in a million years that the way I would be listening to Irish in music would be through hip hop in, in Ireland. Never thought that in a million years. So there I am happily putting kneecap and um, even Hazy from Limerick. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah, he has Ismisha. I'm like, that's a banger. It's like if ODB or DMX like spoke Irish, <laughs> like the, his delivery is like so, it's so dirty, like it's great. It sounds hard as F, right? I just never thought in a million years I would be saying that, but I am. So it's mm. possible, you know. It is, and I guess I know, I know a lot of the exciting kind of Irish language, I guess, content for a bit, for want of a better word, is coming from the north at the moment. Maybe when people maybe had to, like like kneecap and more more um, Zapf who wrote Noni in the book, um, maybe possibly had to fight harder for it. Or there was um there was there was um it. It was forged. It's been forged in a different fire almost up there, and so there's. It, it was. I think kneecap is one of the most phenomenally interesting things to have happened in Ireland, uh, in any in, in any musical genre. It's just as remarkable that something like kneecap exists. It's not forced, and there it's were, organic. Um, yeah, that's exactly it. It's like it's not gimmicky. It's not we're going to translate the song into Irish or we're going to do a song in Irish for the sake of doing something. Ask Wilga. It's like they have 
that they that is they own it. Do you know what I mean? That is their that is their vernacular. They own that language, and you can hear mm -hmm. it in the music. They're they're taking ownership of it, and it's not just decorative as we've just mentioned and, before. And they are not getting a grant for it. They are clearly not. They clearly no. didn't send an application form to get. <laughs> they're not sponsored. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You know. So and it's so it's very punk rock. It's 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 very kind of just. Yeah, it's like that's what I think I appreciate about them is that's organic. It's not it's mm. not coming from an institution, it's not gratuitous, and it's not forced forced education, if that makes sense. Mm. It's like it's totally organic, it's part of the culture. And yeah, I think so. And it's I suppose it and it isn't I'd be it would be interesting to see how I mean, um I've I was was reading one article from uh, about at the the Spanish context of Oh My Golly and other songs in for, for, for a person from Puerto Rico. They've never played a gig in Puerto Rico, even though it's referenced more than any other country, I think, in their music. And which is which is an odd one. And I, I do wonder how their Spanish songs like Vamoose and all went down when they were playing them in Madrid or in Buenos Aires or places like that. That's why I was asking you as an Irish speaker, like, how do you feel? And you mentioned Aerosmith. I was like, that's the only way we could possibly relate to what that feels like, you know, as a as a native speaker, as a language, you know? Yeah, I think so. So it's, I mean, it's, um, yeah, you, you wouldn't want to kind of say a hard no, but I think it's, um, I guess the main thing is what, what, why, what is the Irish for? Is it, what is the Irish being used for? Is it being, yeah, is, is, it, is, it, is it adding meaning? Is it adding decoration? Is it, is it a reference to something that's about Ireland or yeah, is it a case that you just want to say some words and you don't want the listener to know what they mean, but you want them to kind of, um, you want them to invoke a sense that is associated with Irish then. Yeah. yeah you're it, a misty it, mystical druid, like uh, in, hmm. in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, was it the Dublin bus announcement? <laughs> the, exactly. And it's because it's like, I was thinking recently that, you know, there's, there's two books, um we would there's been a bit of talk of Karl Marx recently he's, he's never really gone away and Das Kapital is one of the, one of only one of two German books that's that's always known by its German title and the other is Mein Kampf and it feels like the that calling Karl Marx's book Das Kapital is a way of of as casually associating it with Mein Kampf like we never we never call kind of um, Gunter Grass's or um, books by their German titles. We call kind of Wagner's operas by their um, by their English titles. It's it seems like sometimes that to give something its foreign language name is a way to kind of distance it. Yeah, and and that's um, and in that case, obviously, I think that was maybe that was it was malicious in the case of Marx, but it's it's interesting if you just want to create a. Uh, so if you're using Irish to create distance probably isn't a nice thing to do and particularly if um but and that's similarly using Spanish as, as a way to um if using Spanish as a way to kind of um allow English language listeners to speculate as to what the thing means and can play with it that's probably isn't great but on the other level like I mean it's you there, there's something to be said for taking some of it at face value and again there tends not to be so much linguistic diversity and for a person who's studying Spanish university maybe like letting them have two or three Spanish songs isn't going to um yeah I, I'd like to think that you there's a, there's a scope there for it to be taken at face value yeah so I think we've got a lot there and I think we'll end it but I think so. 
I want you to talk about your books, please, because I really enjoyed them. I read read the book with them. Um, I accidentally got in touch with you at the very beginning on the day I was reading Mother Folklore, which is really strange. Uh, I don't know if I ever told you that. It was really weird. It was the day I had actually taken it out of the library. And okay. then I went on Twitter and I saw your tweet that said, any good podcast? And I was just being cheeky. I was like, listen to mine. <laughs> I didn't know. Then I put two and two together. I was like, that it really spooked me. <laughs> but um, it was a great book. I, I absolutely loved it. And I, I, uh, I read Crack Baby as well. But I want you to talk a, bit, a little bit about those. Oh, sure. Well, I'd be delighted to. And, and, and thank you so much for, for reading my books. Um, Mother Folklore was a book I wrote uh, about. Um, it was after the kind of the Irish four had, had gained a certain amount of popularity. That's a, it's a, it's an account I run on Twitter, which, you know, is ostensibly kind of about sharing Irish words, but it, it kind of, um, it's, I found that like I had a, had a bad relationship with Irish growing up and like partly because of relationship with my dad and kind of relationship with the perception of our, our, of Irish at the time in the eighties and nineties. And then I started rediscovering it when I wanted to know why, why my dad cared about Irish so much. And I wanted to know why, like he's a man who spoke all these languages and he was multilingual and why he saw, why a man who spoke some Arabic and some Japanese and as well as Spanish and French and why he, he felt Irish was equal to all these languages and, and, and fairer still. And when I started dipping my toe back into it and I just found that like the language was delightful and was, was interesting. There was, um, and, there was a whole new world it's just like I just could get lost in which is which is wonderful and I still I, I wanted when I when the opportunity to write a book came along I wanted to um tell that story as opposed to just you know creating a little dictionary of Irish words I set up the Twitter account largely to kind of share what I was learning and also just to you know um use it as a way of mischievously, mischievously commenting on the world around me as well and then I tried to get I tried to capture some of that spirit in the book so I write about um about growing up in Ireland in the in the eighties and nineties, going getting older, getting married, all, at all the points, kind of um, that Irish kind of turned up, the, the 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 delight of having an Irish name and kind of having it misspelled and all those kind of shared experiences to bring us together. And I was lucky enough that Mother Folklore seemed to go down very well. People the book enough, and for people to like the podcast as well. Crack Baby after writing the after writing Mother Folklore, which is about my relationship with my dad. I wrote Crack Baby about my relationship with my daughter, who was born around the time I was writing Mother Folklore. And we, my wife and I were just, were, we were dead set on sending her to a girl's school. And we had all these other plans for her. But uh, shortly after she was born, she was diagnosed with Down syndrome. And she's four years old now. She's still mostly nonverbal. And how, I guess, uh, that the experience of dealing with that shock uh, of that diagnosis made me think about who language is for, who gets to be, who gets access to it, who doesn't. And so I continue to talk a little bit about Irish words, but I tried to put it in the context of, of language being not just something that's forced to be, but it's actually a privilege to have. It's not something people get access to and how the learning about issues around ableism and, and structure, structural ableism in the world that affects everything from the little footpaths. Uh, we walk onto the height of a, a door handle to many other little um, kind of um, things that lie in language itself. It was just a new way of looking at that. And so that was, that was the book about. And it's uh, Crack Baby also did, did very well. And I've got some lovely feedback from it, um, including like I, one of the chapters was about um, good bilingualism and bad bilingualism and the way 
middle class parents in Dublin and, and the rest around Ireland, they wonder how Swiss and Belgian teenagers are, can speak three or four languages so easily. And why can't their, why can't their wee Sean do that? <laughs> but then two blocks down the road, there might be a, uh, a migrant family from Romania or, or one of the Arabic speaking countries who might have three languages coming differently, but society sees that as a problem to be solved rather than some, a difference to be cherished. Something to nurture, nurture and maybe, you mm. know, yeah. Uh, and I just want to add too, is like if anybody has the perception that these books are like purely just educational or, or textbooks or something, that's kind of not what they are. They're very fun to read because you're learning all these little nuggets from the Irish language. All these, like I think one of the books you were talking about how there's different um, different terms for different kinds of seaweed or something. And yeah. that really stuck in my mind. I love that. I was like, we don't have that in English, but we have it in Irish. Mm. Uh, but not only that, there is a personal story interwoven into the book. So mm. it, it is very personal and it does come from a place of taking ownership of Irish in your life rather than it being something um, being preached at you. Does that make sense? And I, I think like that's, why, that's why I think I liked, I really, I really enjoyed those books and I'm glad that I eventually did get around to reading them so <laughs> well I'm, I'm absolutely delighted uh, jennifer because i'm i'd love to hear you know, positive feedback from it because when you when you do write a book you're always kind of worried about all if you've kind of said the wrong thing in one place or if you're going to dwell one sentence but uh it's been really meaningful to get that feedback and thank you so much for having me on i love this band which is one of my absolute favorite podcasts in ireland i think you're just one of the best podcast hosts uh, on this island oh that's so kind thank you so much for that and uh okay so we'll leave it there and thank you Derek. this has been just the best fun ever and i can't wait to come back again and we're going to talk about loads of other stuff about i things irish people like <laughs> certainly are absolutely <laughs> and that was that i just want to thank Derek again for taking time out of his busy day to be a guest on this podcast i'm really happy to have him as a part of I Love This Band, because I know he's been very supportive of this podcast. So that was a lot of fun for me. You can find Derek on Twitter at The Irish Four. You can also follow the Mother Folklore Twitter, which is simply at Mother Folklore. And they're also on Instagram. You can also look up Derek's books. I really recommend reading them, Mother Folklore and Crack Baby. So wherever you get your books, please read them. They're very good. And I enjoyed them personally. So I highly recommend them to anybody who's interested in the Irish language or just language in general. Um, so please pick those up. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook at I Love This Band Pod if you want to give me a follow there. I also have a playlist on Spotify called Songs We Talked About. Uh, and that's really just a reference to this podcast and any of the music I may have mentioned. As you may know, I can't play the Pixies music or anybody else's as, you know, it's copyrighted and this is an independent podcast. And on that subject, um, I just again want to thank you for listening. I write, record, produce, whatever. I do all of this myself. It's an entirely DIY operation. So please tell your friends. Recommend a friend an episode. Maybe they're a fan of the Pixies or The Clash or somebody else and they might really be into this stuff. So yeah, share it out, do whatever you can, give me a follow or a subscribe. And again, thank you for listening. And I hope I'm going to be back really soon for more episodes of I Love This Band.